welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by our panel of newbies. Say hello, panel. Hello, panel. And joining us today, it's Axel. Hello, everybody. Samaria. Hey, guys. And Siobhan. Hey, everybody. And also joining us is my co-host, Saima. What up, wheelies? I'm back. Woo. And it's a good thing you are back because this is one that uh, that you're heading up. This is this is your baby. So I'm just going to pass it off to you. All right, everyone. Hold on to your whatever you hold on to. Uh, We're doing family today. Um, So we didn't do this as a theme in season one. It kind of wove through all the other themes that we did. But as we were watching season two, um, this felt like a really key theme that was coming out so we're gonna we're gonna dive in i'm gonna start off by um a little bit of a disclaimer i rewatched season two yesterday and today and uh one of those episodes was when i was on my nighttime medication and i would highly recommend if you have not yet watched the season while on whatever medication is your chosen choice uh chosen haha um i would highly recommend that (laughs) It gave me a different perspective, and I realized I've started to become really cynical. Are, 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 I'm sorry. Are you are you talking about the dark ones? Lettuce here? Is that what we're? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm talking about the two rivers. <laughs> the kind. Two rivers leaf. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so so you go for the kind stuff, the the really top shelf. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say too much because, you know, family could be listening. But anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) I I had such an enjoyable experience of watching the show. Even though I cried in every episode, I couldn't watch the majority of episode episode five with Egwene. But I realized that I I don't know if you were all like this, and I'd love to hear from people, from, from our listeners. I've become really cynical and critical when I consume media now. Like, I think my whole not believing in anything that we're being fed is actually crossing over into, you know, fiction and enjoyable media. Or I'm kind of analyzing what's happening in a shot. You know, why did the actor make that choice? Why did they raise that eyebrow? Why is Faris Faris so amazingly touchy-touchy with everybody that he interacts with? And I kind of start looking at it. And DW, you know, this is his craft and this is what he does. But I feel like a little bit, like, I really enjoy when he goes into that kind of nitty-gritty because I'm also starting to see it that way. Yeah, yeah. But this rewatch, I actually allowed myself to just be in it. Be with each character, not observing it. As, as the watcher, but actually being there. And it was such a different experience. And it reminded me of what it was like when I read the books. You know, when I, when I, mm. when I first started reading the books, yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I was Rand when Rand was traveling. I was Nynaeve when Nynaeve was traveling. And I, I lost that along the way. And I feel like I rediscovered it. So that was my opening TED talk and how much I love Wheel of Time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so family dynamics. Yeah. So I've got I've gone off into a daze about that now. So yes. <laughs> family dynamics. Um I have made a list of all the different types of family that I have seen in season two. I was thinking about doing it in terms of 
you know, goodies, baddies, or different types of families. But I've actually just decided, let's just jump in because there are so many over, overlapping family dynamics and just see where it takes us. I have to say, when you brought this up as a topic idea, like my brain immediately flitted around to a couple dozen different places. Like, oh yeah, the the different forms that family takes in this show, especially in this season, are so widely varied and so interesting that, yeah. So mm. please, let, let's hear some of the families that you saw. Well, I'm currently um, re-listening. I started with book one uh, with Rosamund Pike. And so it has to be Rand. Who is family for Rand? And what does it mean for him? And I'm going to put it out there to you all. So Rand is adopted, <laughs> as we know. Um, and it looks like his parents didn't tell him he was adopted until they get to that scene in the woods where Tam mm. tells him where he was found. But you would think like being the only redhead that exists in his <laughs> <laughs> entire circle of family and friends and town and, you know, people who come to town or travel through town, you'd think that he might have figured out. Um, there is an explanation for that, which is that uh, his adopted mother, Kari Althor, was a, an outlander and was a redhead. Ah, Okay. So we we never met Kari, but but there was an explanation to that question in the books. So it's quite reasonable for him to have assumed that he he knew his parents. Yeah, yeah. I'm I <laughs> just in this image of my mind of this redhead kid in the show verse who's just like, yeah, it's recessive. How recessive? Very. <laughs> surrounded by all the dark eyed dark haired dark skinned people around him <laughs> i did i did like the fact that that uh he was so completely embraced by his parents that you know the question of whether or not they were like he was really their son just never came up Speaking as, you know, the birth mother of a child that I gave up for adoption, seeing that relationship is just really aff affirmative for me. Yeah. And you, like, I guess the town would notice if his parents just showed up with a baby, like, all of a sudden, after however long. And this baby is clearly more than a few months old by the time that, you know, the, his parents brought him around and introduced him to the community and everybody else was like yeah that's your kid like no one made ran feel like he was adopted everybody like if it was an open secret everybody treated it with reverence and respect nobody spilled the beans on his parents no one took it out on rand like it was if ran was the only one who didn't know he was adopted then it didn't matter because he was still theirs in all the ways that counted. Um, I think also with Rand, um, I mean, Tam is obviously the center of his family. Um, that That's just a given. Um, you can see how much Tam loves him and how much he loves Tam in return. But I think that also the the rest of the Evansfield five they are very much family to him i mean he didn't have he didn't have cousins he didn't have siblings he didn't have any of that that's what they are to him they they are 
the siblings he didn't have. They're the cousins that they that he didn't have to hang out with growing up. And to him, they're just as close a family as, as any blood relative. It's such a small town, too, that, like, in a town that size, pretty much everyone is your extended family just because you grew up with them, regardless of whether or not you're blood relatives. Yeah, and that dynamic's very familiar to me. Like, most of the people I call cousins, aunt, uncle, are not actually related to me by blood or bride marriage, but they've always been present. Like, they helped my parents raise me. They babysat, you know, I babysat their kids, my own cousins. Like, I call them auntie and uncle. I didn't know half of them were not related to me until I was well into my teens. And... So seeing Egwene and Nynaeve and Perrin and Matt, like, that's his family. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. Like, of course, of course they are. Why wouldn't they be? Yeah, I love that, Samaria, because it makes me think about how my family in Pakistan, you know, when I visited, um, everybody was auntie. Everybody was uncle. And... We we knew, we we know that we're all related, but it's kind of like getting the top layers of the the family tree and all kind of figuring out how it all connects. And I imagine Two Rivers is just like that as well. You know, I mean, Tam went out and he got married and he brought somebody back, but the majority of people they know where they come from. I I just recently finished watching uh, Reservation Dogs, which is a fantastic show. I I recommend it to anybody. But uh, yeah, within the the Native American population in that show, it was the same way. Like everybody was auntie and uncle, and everybody was nephew son and thing. You know, it, it was it felt less like a familial term as much as an uh, uh, an acknowledgement of an age differential. You know, you're an auntie if you're older than me. You're you're a cousin if you're younger than me, or or the same age as me, kind of thing. You know. It, yes, it, like my godson, he called me mom for until he figured out like how to like add the extra syllable in front of like mom. And so now it's God mommy. But like for the first two, three years of his life, I was like, I was just mommy, like just flat out. Um, And like I grew up in a family, a very, very blended family. Like everybody has a half sibling, everybody, like up to my grandparents on both sides. And like the if you have a kid in our family you're a family forever and so like i call people uncles who they've been long divorced since before i was born like but they're my cousin's dad and so that that's my uncle you know um my i have a cousin who is not blood related to me but because she's my blood cousin's sister she's my she's my cousin too and so like i like i i I really love, 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 love this Two Rivers family dynamic. Like, it it feels like home. Mm. I think that's what, you know, Jordan was going with, having that you slip into this, you know, you open the, the series up with this something that feels very homely. And if we've experienced it, it feels very comfortable. And if we haven't experienced it, we perhaps have a bit of a yearning, you know, to be living in this quite idyllic and everybody knows each other. Um I wanted to say about the whole kind of sister, auntie, cousin thing. Um, personally speaking, it's very jarring when, as you age and you start no longer being called older sister and people start referring to you as auntie. 
the first time that happened to me i was just like i was like hey, who, who are you talking to what me and i was just like oh my goodness i'm no longer older sister now i'm auntie to these young young beans that are growing up in the family so yeah shocking but speaking of who would be that um and you know Roark, you've you've touched upon this the way ran sees other people in his family so outside of tam then Nynaeve is definitely the older sister and then for the younger people, the older auntie type of person. But not only is she the older sister, she is the protector, right? So she's also the the bodyguard of the village. She's the elder that everyone turns to. But then if you also have a good relationship with her, that's also helpful. And, um, you know, you all know Nynaeve quite well now. She doesn't have good relationships with everyone, but she does with Rand, right? That's really important. She does really see him and, and Matt and Perrin as, I think she sees everyone as her clan, but the way she relates to them, each is different as well. So any thoughts on, well, we haven't finished with Rand. Do we want to touch upon his other family? We haven't really seen him interact with, the the Aiel, the people he came from. Um, so I'm kind. That's of, kind of one of the things I'm looking forward to. Is like he's now not only the are there Aiel in um, Falm, but he's their chief of chiefs. So it's going to be kind of interesting seeing his interaction with them because he really hasn't up until now. So he's gone from having a family of a very small village in the mountain to having a family of potentially. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people uh, living in uh, in the waste. No pressure. He's leveled up. <laughs> <laughs> so, any more with Rand before we move on? So, actually, I have a question about Nynaeve. Would she be considered auntie due to her role as opposed to her actual age? I think so. I think so, yeah. Because she's because she's an authority in the village. Yeah, I I think if if she did not have that authority, she would just be considered cousin or or older cousin. That's interesting, actually. If like any other wisdom, her age would probably also be start to see be start to be seen as a older auntie slash grandma level, probably younger than any other grandmothers. Again, because of the um, the status of being wisdom as well so like if she wasn't a channeler maybe as soon as her gray started to show people might then start you know seeing her even like okay now you're kind of at the the uh, matriarch level now well in her in her nightmare her present day nightmare in the ar arches um matt's mom whose name escapes me um treated her like an equal if not a better like the way she spoke to Nynaeve in the arches the way she was like don't judge me I'm all that this village had left like that was that came from a place of subservience you know of like she didn't talk down to Nynaeve because Nynaeve is younger she talked down to Nynaeve in a way that indicated that Nynaeve like abdicated her position like dishonorably and that was something to be ashamed of like i wouldn't have to do this if you did your job where you know her job is what you know helped grace her that respect even though she's much younger 
Samaria, I love that. You've just given a completely different perspective to that scene. I'm seeing it in a different way and connecting it to something in the book. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> wow, this is going to be a really long episode. <laughs> okay, so um, Nynaeve and her relationship with with her village is one thing. What about her family? So she had her parents that she either has vague memories of what happened to them or as she's gotten older her imagination has filled in the blanks because we don't know how much of the arch in the test how much of that was real or how much of it was her imagination or how much of it was the Terangrial kind of pulling stuff and making her relive which I find quite interesting to kind of think that we don't know exactly what happened because she was a child Oh, that's interesting. um, It hadn't even occurred to me that it might not be an accurate representation of events. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about memory and how much we actually forget, you know, and the things that we cling to. If we were to go back and witness them again, it'd be like, oh, actually, that's not exactly how it happened. Um, But I do think that the Terangrials, they take bits that that are true and then fill them in. And when you're experiencing them, you think it's real. But when you come out, then it's like, well, that's not exactly what happened or would have happened or I wouldn't have done that. But that's a digression. So. <laughs> not, not really, though, because, I mean, if Nynaeve now is a wisdom and a strong channeler, um, she's looking back at a situation where if she had been an adult, she could have helped. She could have done something. She could have saved her parents. When you're an adult looking back on incidents that happen when you're a child, you have all this survivor's guilt that, you know, I could have done something. I, I didn't make the right choices. I, I, I could have done, I could have been better. But then as an outsider looking in, it's like, you're a baby. Of course you, you, you could not have done more. You were a child at the time, but that's not how you remember it. You remember these situations as if you have, have more agency than you actually had. Speaking of someone who like has like, guilt issues over shit that happened <laughs> as a child, right? <laughs> like when I talk about, I talk about these things now, like when I talk about to my therapist about, you know, shit that happened when I was six and she's like, well, what do you think you could have done? You were six, but that's not how you remember it. So could we say that in a sense that th- that part of the terror and growl experience for Nynaeve might have been incredibly healing I guess it's kind of almost a side effect of going through the arches is that she was able to, because I do believe she will have carried that guilt. That's 90s character. She will mm-hmm. have, doesn't matter whether she was one year old, six year old, whatever, she could have done something. And I think that's also part of the two rivers type of, that's the trait that the two rivers have as well. That stubbornness, you know, of, and, and Egwene has it too. So Nynaeve carried that into adulthood. Then she's gone through this experience of going back, being six years old, to her parents but she's there as an adult and having to do the same thing which is leave you know kind of survive right she survives her parents die and then to come out of that whoa i never saw it that way that's a serious therapy session just happened right there i mean for all we know that's what the arches are for yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that may have been their original purpose yeah (laughs) And it and it does make a lot of sense of her choices afterwards to chase after them when uh, she you know fought off the Trolloc and went after those people that she cares about. It's like this is not happening to me again. I am not surviving something that takes out all my friends. 
I'm I'm also reading into that whole little therapy session and seeing how that would lead her to becoming older than she was at a very young age. Her, mm. you know, if I if I'd been more of more grown up, I could have helped. I need to grow up quicker. Okay, yeah. So continuing with the mind blowingness, it's connected to something I was saving for a different episode, but it, it's totally connected, Siobhan, to what you said. This idea that she wasn't able to do anything with her parents then is a continuing theme in the show because I noticed it with episode one and episode eight episode one where she's uh, on winter night and she and Egwene are, you know um she's witnessing she's they're hiding but she's seeing her people being massacred and she can't do anything about it and then in episode eight again when Elaine is shot with the arrow there's a moment where there's all this chaos and you see Nynaeve just absolutely overwhelmed and just looking around at everyone. And it's a throwback to that scene in episode one of her mm. helplessness and that she can't do anything. And she freezes. You've just connected it to her parents to me. That's where that comes from. That she wasn't able, even as a six-year-old, as an adult looking back and thinking, what could I have done? She couldn't have done anything. And she has to, she's, she experiences that again and again. But to me, in that moment with Elaine, which I've spoken about before, where she witnesses Elaine doing the healing, I think that's something for her, something shifts. It's like, this is something I can do. I can channel, but I'm blocking myself. I have to get over this because I need to be able to help. Not just the people that I love, but anyone, anyone who needs my help. I have to be able to do what I can and I'm blocking myself. And that's all, that's, again another part of her healing that she's kind of accepted her helplessness but in one one area she can do something and she's going to go for it oh god i love Nynaeve <laughs> <laughs> so how about the way Nynaeve sees uh so we're talking about how she's she sees her villagers um but any distinctions between how she sees the the other four rand matt perrin and Egwene? Egwene's definitely her favorite yeah her her protege her her younger sister Oh yeah, she gets really jealous of both Karen and Ran. Like it's and fascinating, Elaine. really. <laughs> and Elaine, yeah. I really get the feeling that the the dynamic that they have they've had since before she was uh, Wisdom or even Wisdom's apprentice. I think that part of her her dealing with her trauma was probably she rounded up this this group of smaller children for her to take care of you know even though they're, they're just a few years younger than her but you know they were younger enough that she could be the one in charge and the one that that takes care of them and damn it she was going to and i get the feeling that that yeah that goes back a long way oh, they, 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 they definitely have this this feeling of very tight family that is older than the amount of time that she has been wisdom, you know, the, the, their friendliness, like if she had just recently become wisdom and, and had been that strict at them, they would have all just written her off immediately. But this is a dynamic that they've had for a long, long time. So of course she's going to do that and they just laugh it off. I love the fact that you can literally see the switch flip the moment that she adopts Elaine, it's like, all right, you're, one of, you're mine now. Yeah. 
Brace yourself because this is <laughs> you don't get any choice in the matter. Now you're one of mine. Yeah, like a bear cub, just like kind of knocking yep. against the head, like, okay, now you're mine. Quit, get over here. <laughs> um, Ruak, I love what you've just said. And I just want to explore this a little bit further then. So Nynaeve, who has lost her parents, has become orphaned, is adopted by the wisdom. And then she is attracted to other other kids who are a little bit different. So Rand has lost his mom, looks different to everybody else, lives in the mountains, only comes down every so often. She gathers him in. Matt has an incredibly dysfunctional family. He needs help. She gathers him in. Perrin is apprenticed to the blacksmith, away from his family, who live further out. So he's kind of learning with a different family, but a little bit, you know, he's not with his own family. She gathers him in. And then Egwene, well, Egwene becomes, she finds out she can become an apprentice, a wisdom later. What do we think about Egwene? I don't have to make that connect to the rest. I think Egwene and the rest of them were already good friends. So if she's going to gather them up, Egwene's just getting gathered up along with them. I mean, I they were Egwene all of an age, so they all kind of came as a group. I think I think even in the absence of the others, though, I think Egwene and Nynaeve would have bonded because yeah. they, they have a very singular relationship where they would have become friends, even if the others were not involved. They would have become close. And maybe also, you know, Egwene is the daughter of the mayor, who's the most important person. Yeah. I was just going to bring that up. The mayor and the village wisdom are going to have a lot of business together. So Egwene and Nynaeve would have a lot of crossed paths in that way. So I think Nynaeve developed a relationship with Egwene for Egwene's sake. I think the others, she developed a relationship with them because on some level she thought they needed her. Or she saw themselves. She saw herself in them. Or both. Because Egwene definitely needs help. Not Egwene. Nynaeve definitely needs help. <laughs> She, she, you know, even if she won't admit it to herself, like, desperately needs that camaraderie and support system. I'm just going to say, Samaria, how dare you? I fight you on that. She doesn't need help at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she needs help every second. It's <gasps> difficult to admit. I, I think by the end of season two, she seemed more willing to possibly accept help. She's getting there. Yeah. She's been forced into it, though. Right? Yeah. She's forced into admit, like she really has to confront her limitations to then be forced into. And I think, unfortunately, with Nynaeve, she is the kind of character where she won't come to realizations gently. No, <laughs> they have no. to <laughs> hit her in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's move from Nynaeve to Egwene, since we're already talking about Egwene. I would say that Egwene has a great interaction with her her actual biological family. It's clear that she and her father have a great relationship and she and her mother have a great relationship and her father and mother love each other. And we don't meet them in the book or in the show, but she has many sisters and has a, a big family, busy home life. And there's constantly people coming in and out, traveling through the inn where she's working with the rest of her family. And I think she kind of sees the whole world is an extension of her family. She's she's probably the most psychologically healthy person in the entire <laughs> story. Well, she was. Right. <laughs> they, well, 
Uh, I mean, that, that probably feeds into her resilience. How is she with taking a new family? She's trusting. And that's probably because she her life hasn't given her a reason not to. And so when Moraine shows up out of the blue uninvited, she's like, oh, okay, yeah, let's go. And when Moraine, like, in the dead of night, is like, takes her aside and it's like, you have the gift. Egwene's like, oh, bet. This is great. Awesome. Show me. <laughs> you know, like, she's the one who argues the least with Moraine and with Lon, for that matter. You know, she's the one who takes very well, like, rolls with the punches as a novice at the tower. She's, you know, she's the one who, you know, lets Elaine befriend her. Like, by that point, she's kind of iffy. But, you know, she's she's still game <laughs> to see where where things go with Elaine. She doesn't like scoff at her or dismiss her. Like once she realizes that Elaine's cool people, it's like, oh, yeah, OK, you know. Um, and even while she's enslaved in foam, like she's still fighting back, you know, in a way that's, you know, very apparently unique, like among the ranks and so like and you know when she's in her cell I noticed this last night like once she realizes that she's not isolated she makes a point not knowing whoever was next door not knowing whether they you know were leading in had given up whatever she was like oh hi I'm Egwene what's your name (laughs) you're not alone I'm not alone like so I just feel like Egwene's like perception of family is very expansive and inclusive in a way we don't necessarily see with the others, um, or at least not to that extent. Um, it's not so much a possessiveness, but like a recognition that someone is or could be kin. And so why not? You know, even like in the worst, worst moments of her life, she's still reaching out for that connection, even if it is just for survival. Gosh, Samari, you've just made me realize Egwene's story in a different way that I hadn't really accounted for before. That resilience of having that real tight family security and safety to have grown up in that, how that affects your worldview. Wow. Well, I also think in her worldview, it's it's a combination of that and how central her family was. I mean, her her dad was the mayor, which is like the dad of the whole town. You know, they they live and run the village inn, which is right on the village green, which is where all of the major events in town take place. So the rest of town is constantly coming to them for festivals and events and marriages and things like that. And anybody who's coming through town is staying at the inn. And like I said, I think she sees the whole world as family because the whole world seems to come to her as family, at least up to this point in her life. So yeah, that she would be very open to that family feeling from just about anybody because that's, that's where she's, that's the world she's been in. Yeah. I was just laughing at uh, light blinded fool in chat. Uh, psychologically healthy characters in my wheel of time. I know. That's why yeah. I'm so shocked. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? Yeah, well, apparently we have some. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. 
<laughs> so well, um, well, up until this point, I mean, she just has been through torture, so it's not yeah. like this is a long term thing. But I think this is gonna. This is a really important thread for me now with Egwene that you know so much of her resilience does come from this. But we'll be touching on that uh, when we get to our trauma episodes. I, I I just realized. Just follow me on this. Most people who read The Wheel of Time probably think there is one psychologically healthy character, and that identifies their own traumas. Damn it, Ruach! <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, you've broken us. That's uh, over, folks. Thanks for showing up. I, res- I resent that remark. I, th- I think we all resemble that remark as the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> back to uh, we were we were ending ending from Egwene, moving on. Let's move to somebody who is incredibly psychologically healthy, Matt. Oh, poor Matt, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my baby. <laughs> I've <laughs> with every rewatch, I'm like, oh, honey, hey, I like I- him more and more. He just gets shit on through the entire story, and like just. Like I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that moment with the heroes of the horn, the revelation on his face that he's like, I am not a complete fuck up. I am not, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to people. I am. I'm a hero of the horn. I'm important, (laughs) and I've been important for however many generations this goes on for. This is great. Like, I was so happy for him, like the joy on his face and then the lack of it at the at the end. But. (laughs) <laughs> but until that until he like doesn't realize that was a mirage like a hologram or whatever they're called in this universe it was just like yeah i i've i am i've got this i am just as capable as my friends i am useful like this is good for you honey so for matt family is absolutely his sisters who he never stops worrying about yeah. Um, and obviously he loves his friends, but. But he's the one who is most concerned with home. He's he's also, he's the one who's most, he's internalized his parents. Mm-hmm. Constant, you know, messaging that. Abuse. Yeah. That he's a prick, that he's useless, that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, his self-esteem is in hell. And it's it's honest, it's not his fault, you know? And considering how terrible it is, considering how much it's been shredded and set on fire, like, I think he's actually in pretty good shape. Like, he still shows up, you know, he still tries, he's, you know, he's, Still backs his friends like to the best of his abilities you know he still takes care of his sisters you know he like one of the very first things we see about Matt is that he is flat broke and he's still going out of his way to make sure that his sisters get to participate in this annual tradition with the rest of the community that they don't feel left out that they don't feel like they have and therefore are less than. Um, and he does that at, you know, great expense to himself. Like he, like Pat and Fame, like humiliates him. Like he 
Like he's losing, as usual, many, many bouts of of gambling and he keeps going, even though it's clearly never in his favor. And it's for other people. And like that just that speaks to like just a depth of character that I think gets overlooked. Um because of, you know, where he comes from and his personality and how he presents himself. And he's so emotionally needy. Like, he imprints on men like a baby duck. (laughs) (laughs) He's known her for, you know, what, a week? And he still is genuinely heartbroken when he thinks that she's, finds out that she's, you know, manipulated him. Yeah. he Like, that was a gut punch it was like and i watched that scene last night so this is very very fresh where Mm -hmm. he knocks on her door and he calls her many men men and i'm like yeah oh he like he just he really likes her he he's nicknamed her he seeks her out he brings her with him like he doesn't leave that prison without her and he could have he could have been like oh nice knowing you bye (laughs) thanks for sharing your wine that was cool Good luck. But he doesn't. <laughs> like, he goes out of his way to, like, be like, oh, do you want to leave? I don't know. Like, he includes her in, in his decisions. Like, this very important, unbeknownst to him, fateful decision. Oh, Samari, you've just summed up everything that's awesome about Matt. <laughs> I'm on a roll today. Thank you. Yeah, I I was going to say you have seen straight through to Matt's core in a way that a lot of people don't. So, yeah. I just want to hug him. Like, just, (laughs) you know, just like, He just needs a good hug, yeah. Needs a hug, needs a friend. I just find it interesting thinking about the overlapping circles of of what I would call his, his... nuclear extended family sort of because Mm. within his nuclear family he it's very antagonistic with his parents you know they do not feel like family to him but his sisters are very much his family they Mm -hmm. are they are his family that he's going to defend with his life but then he also has this extended circle of the group of friends that are also very much family and support him in the ways that his his parents do not. And it's, I don't know, it's an interesting overlap that I can see would cause all kinds of confusion and, and who knows. And with Matt, you also have this whole you know, concept of it takes a village. Somebody was saying earlier in chat, because he, this is touching back on season one, you know, when, when parents says to him, don't worry, you know, like my parents, you know, everyone's parents will check on the girls. He totally trusts in that. And yet, obviously, he wants to look after his family, you know, because you always want to be the ones to look after your family. Now, I'm hoping they pick up this thread because it did seriously piss me off that we get no reference to his sisters in season two when it was one of the core things in season one. They need to pick that thread back up to explain, you know, whatever's going to happen. I know... You know, eight episodes, not not a lot of time, but just one reference to his sisters, I think. To me, I just really felt the lack of that. But I was um, genuinely surprised that when he got out of jail, he didn't immediately head home. I mean, you can explain, you can say, okay, five, five, five months of being locked up in a cell, right? Yeah. Trauma, 
And also, you know, uh, Trollocs were following us. What if they follow me back to my sisters? I left because yeah, I wanted to try yeah. to get them away from my sisters. If I go back, am I going to take the Trollocs back? Something. Yeah. I And, and at that point, um, Leandrin had convinced him that his family had dumped him, basically. Yeah. Um, so extrapolating that into there's no place for me at home either it isn't really a far jump. So final of the of the five, the TR five will be calling it now. We can't call them the two yeah, rivers crew. Five, um, the two rivers crew. Perrin, how is Perrin and family in season two? He is a golden retriever of a human being who bonds with every single person he meets. He's not actively trying to kill him. Per art's brilliant. Brilliant. That's In it. Fact, That's Perrin Dunn. In fact, he is actively warned that one of them might just kill him. And he's like, okay, and goes and goes to grab her anyway. <laughs> he is just such a good person. He's just such a good boy. <laughs> I can see his tail wagging from here. Right. Yeah. I guess you know what? That's kind of like some foreshadowing that they did in his character. <laughs> but he really does. I mean, like he is, you know, best friends with Loyal now, someone who's not even the same species as him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, he, well he... obviously cross species friendships are are something that he's into <laughs> fair <laughs> fair you know uno and ingtar and just pretty much everybody that he travels with become you know become Becomes friends part of his pack. yeah including including dane for a very small window right yeah. Yeah. Yep. even a white cloak which yeah, was he's just he's way just unexpected a, a genuinely open-hearted man he's mm-hmm. lovely i love him <laughs> i also just never expected um, him and avienda having that kind of friendship even though she makes him incredibly uncomfortable with her very heavy-handed flirting <laughs> <laughs> he does well he does well <laughs> in the awkwardness yeah. and so with Perrin you know so we have uh, what I was really struck by again with this rewatch is the first shot we get of Perrin you immediately feel how the heaviness is lifted he's still carrying his grief Right? He's still very much connected to his wife and he, he's not ready to let go of his wedding ring. But there's a lightness and it was so it was so great to have the actor be able to act without the heaviness of having killed his wife through season one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's maybe what makes him a little bit more of the golden retriever. Right, He's kind of, kind of come out of that. And I think maybe we see Perrin as he was before Winter Night. That he is very amiable, you know, very loving, very caring, keeping an eye out for the underdog. Okay, um, and so these growing circles of of family and, and kinship. We have that really beautiful letter that he sends to Nynaeve about how we, when we're together, we're stronger. Right, the shield uh, wall that the Shine Irons have. That made me choke up a little bit when I was watching it this time around. Uh, I told you I cried in every episode. It just hit me deeper. And when he comes in at the end to Egwene, I think you must have all talked about it when you were doing the deep dives, but I've forgotten. When I watched it, I was like, oh, this because I, I watched the entire season two in one go. 
over two days. And so it was very fresh. And I thought, oh, this is the letter. This is what he wrote. And now it's happening. He's got the shield, this magic shield somehow that's strengthening Egwene's weaves. I don't know what kind of timey-wimey, spacey-wimey thing that is that they've done with the One Power. Maybe we'll find out at some point. But the way he comes in with the shield and it's like, he's the one that tells Egwene, I'm here. Nynaeve's here too. It's almost like he, and he was the one that was saying to Matt, you know, um, get the horn to Rand. It's the most important thing. I feel like Perrin is a linchpin almost of making this family come back together. He's the one that misses them the most and he brings them back together. I just thought that was, that that came across to me. And so Perrin's other family, uh, interspecies, Hopper and Elias. So the relationship with him and Elias is kind of interesting because on the one hand, he does... Like, it, it's antagonistic because there's this thing happening that he doesn't have any control over and he doesn't understand what's going on. But at the same time, he's looking to Elias for answers. And when Elias says, come with me, he follows. Like, it, it's it's I wouldn't say it's a trusting relationship, but Elias has knowledge that he can use. And he believes everything the man tells him. Yeah. And, you know, he his dynamic with Elias is very very similar to me anyway. It reminds me of how he was with the Tuathuan. Um, Did I get that right? I think I did. Um, Where once he was with them, he was settled. Like, at first he was pretty wary, but, like, he listened and he took them very seriously when they taught him about the way of the leaf. Um... To the point where, ob- I mean, obviously, at the end of season two, we know that he took a big step back from that. Um, but the end of season one, we see him, like, he internalized this so much where he's confused and frustrated and troubled, both with himself and the situation he was in. Um he was like, how how do I help? How do I contribute to this battle without taking a life, without harming others, while staying true to the way of the leaf? You know, he's not the Tuath, he's not Tuathon. He didn't join the caravan permanently. Um, but it was something that he still felt very much a part of that was important for him, important to him. And it was what he needed at the time like in the place where he was at. Um, and I think, I do think that that kind, that is a kind of family. Like I mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't remove that experience that parent had from that definition. No, no, no. absolutely. I love that. And Samari just made me realize something that parent says to Inta that he's afraid that when he sees Fane, he's not going to be able to stop himself from killing him because that's what he wants. He wants vengeance for Layla. But in a, in a way, does that not what happens with Hopper? He's able to enact that vengeance. Hopper Hopper dies and he's immediately able to kill the person responsible for Hopper's death. It just made me, I saw, just saw those two levels in a different I, way. I just realized yeah. that Perrin is the John Wick of the Watt universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. He's a badass. 
avenging Hopper. At, like when I was watching when I was watching this last night, I was like, oh, he was able to avenge Hopper in a way he wasn't able to avenge Layla. And my second thought was, wow, there goes the way of the leaf. That's what Isla tried to teach him. It's like trapping mm-hmm. herself in a cycle of violence because the first thing that Junior said was, I'll remember this. I won't forget this. I'm coming after you. And I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, that's because I immediately got the same flashback to Isla saying, was your life better or worse before you picked up that axe or after you picked up the axe? So, yeah, this is going to come back on him. My only question is, did Dane take the time to count Perrin's fingers before he was dragged off? (laughs) (laughs) Five fingers, but yellow eyes. Looking for the man with the yellow eyes. Um, Something I want to bring up about Perrin and family. um, It's actually something that's missing from the show, but I think is important to Perrin's character, which is the family relationship he has in his apprenticeship at the forge um in the books they do make a big deal out of his apprenticeship to master luhan and and the family that he has there and i think it's it was important because it shows parents level of respect for people and it shows where he got that level of respect uh, he he earned the respect of Master Luhan working at the forge, but he also respected Master Luhan as the master, as as the person who knew more than him and could teach him. And that carries on to his his character everywhere else. He respects people. He respects them for their knowledge. He respects for them for what they, they do, what they can bring to him. He doesn't treat people as lesser than or greater than. He just treats them with respect. And... I'm I'm a little sad that they they left that little family relationship out, but I understand there are a lot of relationships to work into this story. And it and I think they do show it through his personality, that he treats everyone as an equal. And I think that's probably why Ingtar feels comfortable with Perrin, because I can imagine being a Shinaran lord that's only ever been looking after the Shinarans. You know, outsiders probably I don't know. Do they even, you know, they might, they believe in Trollocs now, but they're not helping us. But there is a real friendship there, uh, which I hope we'll see more of when the deleted scene is released one day. Release the Ingtar cut. (laughs) 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 And so I was watching um, whichever episode it was with Elias um, and Daniel was passing by. And um, I said something about how much I loved Elias. And he said, he's deluded and limited in his views if he thinks that the Two Rivers crew are not Perrin's family. And I thought that was interesting that he he's like immediately kind of touched upon that thing that was also very painful for the rest of us too. I mean, I, so I am um, not going to digress too far, but I am definitely of the hashtag Layla was a dark friend. And so I thought that when Elias said, they're not your family, they're not your pack, not even your wife. I thought that was confirmation. Somehow the wolves knew that she was a, a dark friend. I got a bit carried away with that, but then I forgot the, the line that he said just before that, which I wanted to erase, which is, the, your friends are not your pack. And I'm just like, how dare you, Elias? They are his pack. They're his family. <laughs> they are as far as, as Perrin is concerned. So, you know, trying to drive a wedge between Perrin and the rest of the True Rivers crew is not going to go well for anybody. 
But I thought this this showed a diff- interesting side to Elias because he has given up on humanity, right? He's very dismissive, you know, of these human eyes and these, you know, human ways of being. You, you know, I have to say Elias has has a lot of valid points. I think I'd like to subscribe to his newsletter. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that humans have been very disappointing for Elias. I don't I don't think that his position is unearned. Exactly. You know, it makes you, makes me think then what has he gone through that he has rejected humanity and how long has it been or has he ever met another wolf brother? Because Perrin is actually now Elias's connection back to the world of human beings, right? Like they're keeping an eye on him. They helped him get away from the White Cloaks. Elias's sense of family is now expanded to include Perrin. And by default, those who are important to Perrin. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. You know, that I also didn't think of that. Like, does Elias have any other wolf brothers, like human ones? And because he was he was really impatient with Perrin asking all of these questions. And I remember thinking someone had to teach you, but actually did someone teach Elias? I don't know. My question is, do you think that there's any other family out there for Elias from before he became a wolf brother? I do. I have no reason to believe this. Like I have no proof, but I do. I mean, everybody comes from somewhere. But maybe they disappointed him enough that he's abandoned them. Or they're dead. And, like, that's a big part of why he has rejected humanity. Maybe when they saw him turning into a wolf person, they're like, oh, my God, you're a monster. Get the fuck out of our village. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things we, when Perrin first started uh, manifesting his abilities, we were all kind of like, is he a channeler? Is he a channeler? I can see... If the only magic that you know of is channeling, you're going to make assumptions about this guy who's all of a sudden talking to animals. Right. And whose eyes are turning yellow. <laughs> and this is not a Disney movie. So now is a good time to get out of Dodge because the Red Sisters are just over the hill, you know? Yeah. And Elias does say to Perrin, doesn't he, that we don't go around, go around women who can channel because I said I don't like things that they don't understand. That sounds like the voice of experience. So we talked about different types of families, right? Found family, created family, families we're leaving behind, families that we're trying to get back together. What kind of family are the chosen? <clears throat> Sorry, forsaken. Yeah, you know, I was like, I'm pretty sure Simon means the forsaken. But, you know. <laughs> the chosen is is what they were known amongst themselves and and the dark friends. So I think Saima is is letting us in on on her team affiliation here. <laughs> I, I find their relationship fascinating. Like the more I see about the history of those three, um, Lanfear, Shamael, and Louis Theron, the more interesting I find it. Like they started off as friends. They were all together on the same side, working together. And two of the three went dark friend in apparently reaction to something that Luz did. So I just find the whole thing. I mean, as far as Lanfear is concerned, like she's really interesting to me as a Forsaken because I get the feeling that if she and 
well, ran now, but she if she and Luz had just run off together, it that would have been that. She would have said, fuck the rest of y'all. I'm like, I got what I wanted. Goodbye. Um, and I still think that with Rand, because <laughs> um, she clearly doesn't see Rand as his own person. Like, she clearly sees him as Luz in a new body, which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Rand, from what we've seen of Lon Fierce so far, like Rand is her number one priority and also her last priority, and everything else just seems to be circumstantial. Like, and the other other Forsaken don't trust her. Like, um, why is everybody's names escaping me today? Who's the hot one that we meet first? Ishamael. Thank you. Just call him him Ishii. (laughs) Ishii. I feel like he looks like an Ishii. Yeah, him. You know, Ishii and Lanfair, we obviously and literally go way back. You know, Ishii releases Lanfair first before he releases the others, which he only seemed to do because he was like, I don't trust Lanfair. And so it, it seems like it's them two first, and the rest of the Forsaking are just their really annoying cousins they only <laughs> deal with at the family reunion every couple years. And, like, they they will they will hang out with them for the long weekend that the family's all together, but they keep running off. <laughs> keep running off and sneaking out by themselves and, and like, picking up Lewis wrong, along the way because he lives across the street <laughs> and so he's not technically family but like they like him more anyway <laughs> I, I am loving that I am loving this little <laughs> this little vision that you're cooking up it's beautiful <laughs> I do wonder about Ishamael's um family of origin though because he seems to identify pretty heavily with Matt he keeps saying that he knows Matt really well he knows what Matt's motivations are. He knows everything about him. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you came from the same kind of background. So you think you know Matt. You think you know what his choices are going to be. Yeah, he falls into the same trap Lon Fear does where he thinks this is Lewis. And I'm like, this, this is a whole new person. I don't understand what's not clicking here. Um but like Ishii and Lonfear, they stick together. Like they get on each other's last nerve, clearly. But they like <laughs> they confer with each other. They check in with each other for whatever value that has and for whatever reason. But they do. They don't act as one, but they do act in concert. They do bicker, which for me is like one of the top three signs of family is if y'all can argue and still like walk along hand in hand, you know? Um, like, Ishii resurrects the other Forsaken, and he does that to keep Lonfear in check, basically. Like, he's like, oh, I need backup, and the only way I can, like, get my way around here as the firstborn child is if our younger siblings, <laughs> like, keep you occupied. Um, they're besties, and, you know... Lots of best friends can't stand each other. It happens all the time. That, honestly, <laughs> that their closeness feels more like brother sister to me than even besties. Like 
the level of sniping back and forth while still kind of having each other's back just that feels like siblings is there any reason to think that the forsaken have anything in common with each other beyond a desire to destroy the world you know like they 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 all have different motivations for having sided with the dark one um with Ishi and Lanfear being kind of the exceptions because they appear paired up, but and if all they have in common is kind of like a co you know they they have a common goal but not a common methodology, they don't come from the same place. Ishi possibly recruited them, uh, but they really have no reason to get along or behave in any way other than like hostile to each other too. <sighs> I don't know if it fits in this episode, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I want to hear you, you being the the panel, um, theorize ideas as to why some of the other Forsaken may have turned to the dark. What what are some basic ideas? What are some tropes? What are some things that we think might be behind them? So we have seen three motive. Four motivations. No, let's say three, because Dana and uh, Ishamael basically have the same motivation. They want the suffering to end. Birth is a curse. <laughs> existence, existence is a curse. Lanfear was specifically to get something she wants. She got her heart broken. She wants to change uh, somebody else's choices so that she gets to be the one who gets the guy. Uh, and Leandrin was to get eternal life for her son, which backfired spectacularly. So I, I think like pretty much any motivation that anybody has to make a deal with the devil, I want knowledge. I want power. I want revenge. I want. I want to see the world burn. Yeah. I just, I'm just a shitty person and I just want to, I've been hurt, and I want to revisit my hurt back upon everybody else. Because fuck you. Which something that's really you get really people who are intentionally shitty. Nobody sees themselves as a villain. I I like I used to have this thing like you play video games where it's like you know there's a cult that's out to destroy the world, and you have cultists who are working to release Cthulhu or whatever. And I'm like, why would you do that if it's also going to destroy your world? And then I read about the Koch brothers, and I'm like, okay, now I get it. There are people who genuinely just don't give a shit as long as they get what they want, even if it's just temporarily. Well, if we think about it, in the show, they we did have that conversation between uh, um, Ishamael and Lanfear, where Lanfear mentions... Grendel's just a vain idiot, Mogedian's crazy, and the boys couldn't channel their way out of a wet paper bag, essentially. Um, so any thoughts from, from that? So I see, I, I mean, we, we just met Mogedian so briefly, but she definitely comes across as somebody who likes the idea of power and control. That whole spider thing she's got going on <laughs> it's like i want to be able to play with you all like my little puppets so i could totally see her selling her soul for for more power okay yeah like a spider is a predator but like they are very specific about 
how they they hunt um in which they catch you unawares like you don't like i if i can't see a spider web <laughs> i i assume you know the insects that get trapped in them don't either there's a very specific order that Mulgadian sees and that she believes that the world should be in. And if she has to entrap people into that order, so be it. And obviously she's the spider here. And so like, not only is there a specific order to the world, but she's supposed to be in charge of it, you know? And, like, listen, I find spiders all over my house. Like, I leave them as long as they're in the corner and not bother me. I'm like, roll tide. Stay over there. I'll leave you alone. You stay in your spot. I'll stay in mine. And we can coexist in this home together. <laughs> but being a dark friend, a forsaken, clearly that that would not leave her content. Like, no, it has to be everybody in this in this with her. And by with her, I mean for her. So Samari, you don't want to be roommates with Muggy? No, that's that's all right. <laughs> I like to see things coming, which is probably why Lon Fear can't stand her either. Like I'm with her on this. <laughs> Lon Fear, like if you're gonna be a bitch, please be a bitch where I can see you. <laughs> I just love this and now I just want I I need a remake of Modern Family. With the chosen. I just, like, come on. That's just dying to be made. It would be a hit. I don't know if Ishamayal could pull off Phil, though, but it'd be interesting. You're really concerning me with all of this uh, chosen talk that you're, you're doing. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why in my notes it, I've just called them all chosen. <laughs> because I'm looking at it from, from, Ishamael's perspective, uh, okay. right? He's the head of the family. He's not a patriarch. He's the gender neutral arc of <laughs> the chosen. Um, because obviously the, the non binarch. Because the big daddy's obviously the dark one. Well, we know Ishamael is definitely everything, anything that he likes. I'd just like to say I really appreciated his the way that he looks at matt up and down during the whole is it a murder thing or a sex thing and he looks him up and down it's like a little bit like mm, no neither actually decide. like well that wasn't on the list but now it is like i'm trying to bring about the end of everything <laughs> i wouldn't mind a little bit but not now <laughs> you, you know it does it does suddenly occur to me that uh, ishi does have some some big bowie energy going on Oh, yeah. Ishii yeah. has it all going Very on. dramatic. <laughs> Just all. All of it. <laughs> so back to family dynamics. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I was going to say chosen with daddy issues. So as Axel was saying, you know, like, why, what are all the different reasons that you would turn to the dark, right? And the, the dark one, the greatest being outside of the creator that people in Randland know. And how does that have a knock-on effect on the way that we deal with others? And I just want to bring up Ishii and um, the little Tuatha'an girl. Is that just Ishii's caring nature, the way he just is, whilst also being a nihilist? I don't think he cares about her. I think it's very performative. 
That was a recruitment <laughs> tactic. Well, so he gets to, you know, talk about his attitude towards things to an audience that won't argue with him. It's just, you know, you're... He's monologuing. Yeah, and, and she was just kind of a a toy. I I I don't know because there is a a thing about nihilism. I mean, I I would consider myself fairly nihilistic in most cases, but it's it's like I hate the whole, I don't hate the individual kind of thing. And I kind of feel like that's where he's coming from. He's like the whole universe is suffering. You little girl, you're just fine. You're you're still innocent and pure, but I'm still going to end it all so that you don't have to go through that. Well, so that that's the thing, right? Like he can very much be coming from a position of loving people and hate, the, you know, like and sees that what he's doing is for the is for the greater good. It is for the good of everyone in the long term. You know, we think everything's okay because we're seeing f a five minute snapshot. But he's seen the whole picture because he's been here a million times already. I think if you, you care know. about someone, you don't send them off in a group with that includes Pat and Payne. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, fair, fair. Very fair, Siobhan. Yeah. Oh, all right. You, you just you blown just... caring Ishi out of the water. <laughs> I guess there's a question. How does Padden what's Pat and Fane's motivation? Is it just Boys just want to have fun. I, think I don't think he joined asshole. the dark side for family. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh, no. Like, do, yeah. Does he care about anybody else except himself? Honestly, I halfway don't think he cares about himself either. He seems very enough afraid to run when. Yeah. <laughs> when, oh yeah. The self are well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, he does seem to have, seem to have. You know, quite strong loyalty to Ishi. He knows a lot about the other chosen. Right? Ishi shared a lot with him. I really think he's just a you know enjoys watching the, the idea of watching the world burn. Person, I think his motivation is that simple. I mean, I could see him be like he'd be loyal to Ishi because Ishi is like the big, the biggest, baddest guy. So if you're going to, um, you know, if you if you're joining a team. Stick close to the captain. You know, learn as much you can, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just make sure that you run away before the captain gets taken out, which he managed to do. So, light blinded yeah. fool is in the chat saying, "Pad and Fane's family consists of himself, 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 and the dagger." <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's entirely fair, and, and, I, and I do believe those four themselves are four individual people. <laughs> that, yeah. and they sometimes get along and sometimes don't i um i think pod and fane just genuinely just does not have anything to live for one way or another and so he's choosing the path of least resistance the path that requires the least amount of him having to give a fuck <laughs> and here we are and he gets power and he gets to have, um, you know, monsters that do his bidding. And like, it's very hard to be a decent person, actually. And so, like, and be committed to this. Like, I guess it's like, you're like, oh, you're being nice to someone passively that you don't have to. That's one thing. But to make 
choices actively to be a productive citizen of the world, whatever that is, that that takes a lot of effort. And Pat and Fanning's like, but why? <laughs> and <laughs> what's and, in it for me? <laughs> and his answer is absolutely nothing. And so there he goes. He's, he's like, I could be productive, but that other path looks a lot more fun. <laughs> but then again, like he, I mean, like he spent years being like a, a crappy merchant, got, like traveling to backwaters, you know, like dealing with like, you know, rural bullshit. But they fed him and they like, you know, bought him a beer in the inn and they treated him like a friend. If he's getting sent there by the dark, do we know that he's necessarily a peddler anywhere except when he shows up in the Two Rivers? Maybe that's just his cover when he goes to the Two Rivers. But if he wasn't, like, wouldn't somebody have said something? Wouldn't, some, wouldn't you know, that get commented on by other travelers at some point? Yeah, you know, not, not all traveling peddlers know each other. Mm-hmm. But it seems difficult to me. The thing is, there are only so many festivals, fairs to go to, right? Like times to be in place. So typically, your pe- your traveling pe- your traveling peddlers do tend to know each other. I mean, just look at Ren Fair regulars, like you know who 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 do who do the circuit. The yeah, but that's, kind of that's when there's only a few Ren Fairs. This whole world is a Ren Fair. <laughs> <laughs> this whole this whole world of large chunks of no, of, of nothing, right? Like, and, the, and this and this particular town, not a lot of, a lot of other peddlers go to because it's a, a backwater yeah. dead end. In this yeah, there's mountains. not a whole lot of people that come in, and not a whole lot of people that go out. So yeah, you know, yeah, could be pretty much the news that they have comes from him and the merchants that come through. And right, there's nothing to say that the merchants have to know that he, you know, merchants yeah. might come from elsewhere and say, oh yeah, Bad Vane must just. Go to his merchanting up somewhere we don't know about. You know? Yeah. So I've just had a horrible thought. Does that mean Padan Fane is actually part of the family system of the two rivers? He's the regular that goes out and comes back, brings them news, brings them supplies. He's well known and liked. I, I would say loved. the people of the two rivers probably see him as like, you know, that uncle you just kind of look at yeah. side eyed, but he's still mm-hmm. part of the family. <laughs> I don't think he looks at the two rivers people as family, oh, but God, I think no. they, they no. look at him that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the people who left are the only ones who know what he did, that he's the one who brought the Trollocs into town. Yeah. So as far as the two rivers crew is concerned, if he shows up, he's still just Pat and Fane the peddler. Yeah, I, I would bet that most of the people in the two rivers probably assume that Pat and Fane is dead and died in the Trolloc attack. Because they they probably found his torched wagon and didn't find him anywhere and just, you know. Assume he's in a cook pot. And he has no reason to go back to the two rivers again. Like, he was only, he was going there to see the crew and the crew have left. So, and, you know, we have no reason to believe he has, he gives, he gave a shit about the area at all, except it was his job. So we know he's going to pop up somewhere because... As Axel said, he you know is very good at squirreling out. That's two squirrely exits, season one and season two. Mm-hmm. Mm, mm, mm. Again, reasons that we might turn to the dark. And Siobhan, you mentioned Leandrin and her son. So Leandrin and Eludrin. That was such a heartbreaking story. Yeah. Like Leandrin is clearly a very lonely character. 
like which may or may not be a reason why she joined the red but um like she doesn't have any friends at least partly out of choice <laughs> um she intentionally hides her only family in Tarvalon, even though it is not safe for either of them. She sells her soul to the dark just to keep him with her. Like, we know her lifespan will be 300, 400, 500 years old. And her very human, non-channeling child will live maybe a quarter of that if he's lucky. And, you know, she's not allowed because of her own actions, yes, to like have mentees. Like she's just alone. And like the one thing she has in this life that she even wants, like truly wants, is her son. And like, she obviously doesn't see the Dark as family. She doesn't see anybody in the White Tower as family. The Reds might be family on a good day um, after she just ate a really good meal, I guess. Like, Nynaeve could be family. I think she'd be, you know, more or less happy to have Nynaeve at fam as family. But then she sells her into slavery, so, you know, or tries to. So, like, there goes that. <laughs> and... I just, I don't quite know what to make of it because I feel like Leanne is one of those people who probably does want to be part of a chosen family and like fucks it up, self-sabotages it at every single turn. <laughs> and so it's in a feedback loop of, I want it. Okay, fucks it up. Well, I don't like you guys anyway. Wash, rinse, repeat. Um, <laughs> oh, bless her heart. <laughs> Her own worst enemy. <laughs> yeah, you could really see it looked like her and Nynaeve were actually bonding for a while there, especially after Nynaeve came out of the arches. They're, the conversation they have in that room, you know, uh, where Nynaeve says, was any of us real? And Landrin says, the pain and the loss. <laughs> you know, like, Gandrin was obviously, like, all up Nynaeve's junk through the, the whole time she was in the tower, but Nynaeve actually seemed to be responding to her and they were they were bonding and they were communicating. And then the next thing you know, Leandrin sells, gives her to the Sean Chen. And you know, so much for that. So I want to follow this thread of Leandrin and Nynaeve because I think you're absolutely right. Leandrin loses her is losing her son, right? Even before she find she loses him completely. She's losing her son, the connection to the world, the only remaining connection to the world. And this new person comes into her life, Nynaeve. When Nynaeve says to Leandrin in the archers, who did you, you know, who have you found to replace when you, you have to find something, a piece of this world, and when you, when that goes, you find a new piece. And Nynaeve says, you know, have you found your new piece? The way Leandrin looks at Nynaeve, on this recent rewatch, I was just like, oh my God, you. She's replaced, like, she's lost her son, and now the piece that she's holding on to is you. And in that whole journey through the ways, it just kind of reinforced it to me. And at the end, when she lets Nynaeve's bonds go, she's saying, you know, oh, like, Suroth, now you're going to get shit. Because 
I'm letting, I've loosed the Kraken. She has that much faith in Nynaeve. And I don't think she's had a relationship like that with somebody in a very long time. Something happened with between her and Moraine. There was that very awkward cheek caress, right? There's something there. Was Moraine close? Were they close? Was she considered as a possible family member and then she lost that connection? I don't know. But I'm really excited. And this is unknown for us as well, book readers. This is new relationship. I'm so excited to see which way they're going to go. Because the relationship between, the dynamic between Leandrin and Nynaeve is not over. I don't believe that for a moment. Nynaeve is going to kick her ass. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's coming. Well, there's that. There's that. They have to. She has to find her just to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just in terms of family, losing family, you know, that that there is that connection because Leandrin is losing her son and oh. Nynaeve lost her daughter. Yeah. They have that shared experience of being pregnant, giving birth, raising a child, and losing them. And losing them because of the tower. <laughs> yes. Wow. Mm. That whole scene where Nynaeve comes out of the arches and starts screaming was just like I couldn't breathe <laughs> watching her go through that. And she tried so hard to take the, the, the girl with her. I, I really think if it hadn't been for the Trollocs, like Nynaeve might, would have made the choice to stay. And I guess that's the final piece of Nynaeve's side of family, is the one that she has created for her and she lives at least five years with. And the way that she sees Matt and Perrin in this fantasy version of living in the two rivers, with Lan making honey cakes. It's such a contrast to Rand's version of that, where Rand shows up and he he's got he's got everything he ever wanted. He's got the family. He's got the daughter. Um, his friends are still there because you know the Egwene of the vision makes a reference to you know Matt's never going to get around to making the lantern. So, but he doesn't have the history. He doesn't have the memory of the baby being born of he and. Egwene becoming partners like it's not real to him but the vision for Nynaeve she went through all of that history it was all very real that's interesting I didn't think about it that way that if Ishii had just had a little bit of patience and left Rand in that dream fantasy and showed up a, you know maybe a few months or a few years later, could it had a had a different impact? Obviously, they couldn't do it with a show because you know finale. Hello, but <laughs> it had to be five minutes long. I love that, Siobhan. Yeah, yeah. that's that's uh, my my mind is blown a little bit. That's fascinating to think about. So. Okay, we've got through half of my notes, which is um, better than I thought we would do. So, folks, we're going to come back with more episodes on family and um, and continue to send us your your thoughts on what the family dynamic, something that we might have missed today with who we've spoken about, and we can uh, bring them back up again. So, yeah, over to you, Ruach. We want to say thank you to Michael and Jen out of the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thank, thank you, Michael, Michael and Jen. And Jen. 
They, of course, host our sister podcast, uh, Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Also check out the other podcasts on the network. We've got a Watch Party of Ice and Fire and Watch Party Gaming as well. Uh, lots of fun podcasts to listen to. You don't have to just listen to us. Uh, check us out on all the socials at WattWatchParty, uh, WattWatchParty.com if you want to find all of those socials and where you can find us on on all of the podcast purveyors and and where you can get in touch with us and find our Discord because that's how the people who joined us in chat today joined us through the Discord. So yeah, join our Discord and all that other fun stuff. Anyway, I'm done talking like this. Now to Saima for our final question. <laughs> thank you, Ruark. And also want to say thank you to the folks joining us live uh, through Discord. It's um, uh, not as disconcerting as I thought it was going to be to have invisible people out there watching us while we record. So thanks for joining. <laughs> so our final question, uh, which has been provided to us by our listeners today, is which family in the Wheel of Time is the most like yours and which family would you prefer to have? I unfortunately have to say that the family most like mine is Matt's. <laughs> um, I would have loved to have Perrin as a big brother. He just, you know, he gives great hugs. Mm. Yeah, he exudes big brother energy, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm thinking about my mom, like I, my family definitely looks like a Gwaine's on that end, where my mom's like this, like, the person who holds all the threads together like she's the one who checks in on people she's the one that people go to she's the host of all the family functions like and so i never had to go far people came to me um and you know my family oh, speaking of she's calling me right now <laughs> um <laughs> but me and my dad are definitely like swan and hers like i'm his only child like he sacrificed a whole bunch for me like we're very close and so a combination so honestly i think i'll keep it that way but i want to adopt on Vare because she's a badass <laughs> and i want her on my team um i think my family is most like rand in that like i grew up as uh, an army brat so my uh i was the only my only immediate like it was my just my immediate family and we lived a long way from any of my extended family um and since then i've moved even further away uh and formed a family based on people i know yeah. um and i guess i'd like parents i'd like you know i like a pack i'd like a pack i would say that mine is most like the original two rivers crew because like them to me, my my chosen family, my friends are are far more important to me than anything else. I would like to take that, um, but also add that uh, my family is uh, like Matt's, but the size of Alana's. Uh, but and I too <laughs> no. would prefer yeah. to have. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, imagine that. Hmm. Uh, but I too would also like to um, choose Hopper and his family as my family. Because I like the occasional connection with the world, but actually you're just living with nature and you're solitary with other beings that are solitary. Learning to eat uncooked meat would be a challenge, but... It's just sushi, but a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs>